Jeremiah chapter 29. You're going to say, we're not in Luke today. No, we're not. Um, We will be back in Luke next week, but there are occasions in which we will jump out of a text and deal with something else. And this particular occasion is, is the occasion of a presidential election and an election for the balance of the Congress and the Senate that's upon us. And the fact that we're in that season as a nation every, every four years in which we see a, a, a large shift in where we're going as a country. And, and as a result of that, I want to be able to address that a bit. And you may be surprised at how I'm going to address that. Um, hopefully you're surprised and encouraged, regardless of what end of the political spectrum you come from. Um, this morning as we look at Jeremiah chapter 29. Look there with me in verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare." Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you to this place, back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word, the word you gave through your prophet Jeremiah to your people, your chosen exiles from Israel to Babylon, we pray that as as we look at this word that you would illumine our minds, that you would turn on the lights in our dark heads so that we would see the truth, would love the truth, would know the truth. Father, we'd understand what it is that you commanded your people to do while in exile in Babylon. And that we would understand, Father, what it means for us as elect exiles and sojourners in this world to do what you would command for us to do as those who live here in this contemporary Babylon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jeremiah was a prophet to the nation of Israel. And he was a prophet to the nation of Israel just before and during their exile. If you're not familiar with their history, let me give you a little bit of of familiarity. Israel had come into the land that God had promised. God had promised this land and their family going into it to Abraham, the father of their nation. He promised that they would take them into the land. And they wanted to go to the land, but on the way there, they had a season in which they ended up in Egypt and in slavery in Egypt. And a man named Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt and led them toward the land. The first generation of people sinned against the Lord. 
And as a result of their sin, they didn't get to go into the land, but the second generation did get to go into the land, and they were led in by Joshua. Joshua led them into the land, and they lived there for many years under a, a series of judges, until at which point the people had a king. The first king was Saul. His heart was not after what the Lord's heart was after. The second king was David, the man after God's own heart. And he established, really, the monarchy that existed in Israel. And David had a son, Solomon, who united the empire in Israel and built it up to its greatest splendor under Solomon. And then Solomon had several sons and grandsons and great-grandsons. And as you go through the history of Israel, some of these sons did what was right in the sight of the Lord. They followed the Lord. And as they followed the Lord, God blessed the people. And some of these sons turned from the Lord and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And as they did so, God brought curse upon the people. And the nation was split up. It was split up into the point where you had Judah and Israel, and Judah being the southern part. And it was under the rule at one point of a king named Josiah. And Josiah was a man who became a king as a young boy. And Josiah was a man who loved the Lord and wanted to follow the Lord. And he tore down all the ashram poles and got rid of all the bales and got rid of all of the idolatry that was in Israel. And he sent to restore the temple. And as the people went into the temple to restore it, they came out with the book of the law. And as Josiah saw the book of the law, he recognized the people had not been keeping it and he repented. He tore his clothes. He was greatly grieved by the people's life up to this point. And he repented and turned to the Lord. And while he was there, it was prophesied to Josiah that, that God will basically exalt Israel and you, Josiah, while you reign. But after you, God's judgment is coming for Israel. And Israel will be exiled. Well, there was a man who was called to be a prophet in the midst of that. And his name was Jeremiah. He was called to be a prophet in approximately 627 B.C. 627 B.C. 30 years later, as he prophesied that the people would be exiled, that this man named Nebuchadnezzar, who ruled Babylon, would sweep into Israel and conquer them and exile from them from the land as God's judgment for their sin. As he prophesied this would happen, it came to pass 30 years later in 597 B.C. The people were exiled. Some of the people wanted to stay behind in Jerusalem. Some of the people were left behind. Nebuchadnezzar didn't want them, Jeremiah being one of them. But many of them Nebuchadnezzar wanted, and they wouldn't go. And many of the prophets were rising up at the time and telling the people, don't follow Nebuchadnezzar out of Israel. I know Jeremiah the prophet is telling you to go with him into exile, but you shouldn't. And Jeremiah keeps, continues to warn them, you need to follow what the Lord is saying. He's exiled you. He sent you there, so follow them. Follow Nebuchadnezzar out. Go into Babylon with him. You will be in exile for 70 years, and then God will return you to the land. So that's where the story picks up in chapter 29 as Jeremiah is writing to these people. But I want to look briefly at his calling, at his calling at the beginning. Look at Jeremiah chapter 1. I want you to see his calling as a prophet. Chapter 1 and verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Ananoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon. So Jeremiah is the son of Hilkiah. Hilkiah is the priest who prophesied to Josiah telling him, listen, here's what's going to happen, Josiah. Hilkiah is the one who brought the law out. And Josiah ends up having a son himself. His son um, is named Jehoiakim, and he's wicked. And he doesn't follow the Lord. He doesn't listen to anything that Jeremiah tells the people. But here is Jeremiah, and the, the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign, which is about 627 B.C. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Je Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. That's about 597 B.C. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, 
I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. And we see this again and again with God's prophets, don't we? With Moses, I'm calling you to be a prophet, Moses. Go to Egypt. How, how, can, I, how can I do that? I don't, I don't have the voice to speak. Don't you know me? I, I, I just have trouble doing that kind of thing. And the Lord answers, Moses, I'll be with you. Josiah comes and, or excuse me, Josiah, not Josiah, Jeremiah comes and says, behold, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a youth. I'm young. Who wants to listen to me? But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. And now listen to what um, Jeremiah's call is here, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow. So Jeremiah, you're coming in to declare to the people God's judgment for their sin which will be the overthrow of Jerusalem and their exile into Babylon. And you're to tell them how they're to behave in exile. And one more thing, last thing, to build and to plant. You're to tell them how to live among those people and eventually of God's promise to bring them home and give them a new covenant. The vast majority of the book of Jeremiah up to the point of Jeremiah 29 is about God tearing down He's tearing down by sending Israel into exile for their sin. And he's destroying those who won't obey and who won't leave the city of Jerusalem. Look at Jeremiah chapter 21, just on the way there. We'll see this tearing down as opposed to the building up. Jeremiah chapter 21 and verse 8. And Jeremiah is told this from the word of the Lord. And to this people you shall say... Now, this is the people who will not leave Jerusalem, who will not follow what God has commanded. To this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. For I have set my face against this city. That's Jerusalem. That's a shocking statement for the Lord to set his face against this city, which throughout scripture up to this point, Jerusalem is the city whose foundation is peace. It's the city of God. And he says, I set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall burn it with fire. See, Nebuchadnezzar's coming. And judgment's coming with him. But in Jeremiah 29, the tide turns. In other words, for most of this book, what we hear is about the tearing down and the destroying. We don't hear much about the building and the planting that Jeremiah is called to do. And suddenly in Jeremiah 29, there is a turn as God begins to focus Jeremiah on the building and the planting. In other words, my judgment is coming upon the people. You need to warn them. Warn them, let them know. And then they're going to go into Babylon. But eventually I will build and plant with them. And I will bring them home. And the tide begins to turn here in Jeremiah 29. God's favor rests on the people who believed him and obeyed him and went into exile in Babylon. Did you hear that? Although these people had sinned and God's judgment was coming, his favor rested on those who listened to the words of the Lord coming through the prophet Jeremiah and believed him and obeyed him and went into exile willingly in Babylon. He tells Jeremiah how they ought to live in exile as people, and he makes promises to them. And what I hope we can do today is to look at how God instructs his people to live in exile, because that's where they're going to live for some time. And then see the promises that he makes to them in the midst of their suffering and exile. And as we look at at this, I want to point out uh, four things. Here's the first one. Who they are as people. Who they are. Second, how they must live in exile. Third, what they must not do. Hear that? What they must not do while they're in exile. And fourth, 
God's gracious promises to them. God's gracious promises. So let's look first at who they are. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. At the end of verse 3, it says, it said. Then coming into verse 4, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Now he's speaking to somebody. To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. In other words, these are God's people. They believe God and follow God, yet these are people who are sent as exiles into Babylon. They don't get to live in God's city as God's people. They're living in exile as God's people. They're living in Babylon, the city of man, the city that's opposed to God. And I want you to stop and think about this for a minute. God sent his people into exile in Babylon. The nation of Israel had sinned greatly, and as a people they rebelled against God, and God sent the whole nation into exile for their rebellion. But here's the key, here's the key to understand this, because you go, well, fine, some people deserved it. But what we need to know is those who went willingly and who obeyed God's prophet Jeremiah, who believed him, were not rejected by God. They weren't rejected by him. They were still his people, still being cared for by him. There was a remnant of Jews who believed and who obeyed, and who went into exile willingly as God commanded. And those Jews who would not trust and obey were rejected by God. But it's important to recognize that those who believed God's people were still suffering in Babylon with those who didn't believe. Do you hear that? God sent them there. God sent his people into exile from Jerusalem the land flowing with milk and honey, the city of God, the city of righteousness and peace, into Babylon, the city of man, the city opposed to him. He chose them for this period of exile. They were elected to this. Babylon and Jerusalem, really in Scripture, are two cities that are paradigmatic throughout the Bible. That's the paradigm. I'm sorry for using that Paradigmatic throughout the Bible for the city of man and the city of God. Just follow me on this. Babylon stands for the city of man throughout Scripture and Jerusalem for the city of God. The garden starts out as the city of God, doesn't it? It's the place where God's people live in God's place under God's rule and blessing in this city or kingdom of God. It's where they live in the garden. But they turn to sin and they're tossed out of the garden. And then their son Cain kills their other son Abel. And after that, Cain is banished. And what's interesting about Cain is he goes and builds a city to exalt man. And that city eventually becomes wicked enough throughout the earth that God floods the earth and starts again with righteous Noah. And not too long after Noah's around and starts again, what happens? Man again tries to build a city to compete with God's city. And what's that city called? Babel. And God destroys Babel and scatters man across the earth. And God comes to a man named Abram, which means exalted father. And his later name is changed to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. And God makes a promise to Abraham. You will be my people. And I will send you to my place, to my city, my kingdom, where you will live under my rule and blessing. And it will come through your seed. And so Abraham takes his family and goes towards God's place to live under God's rule and blessing as God's people. And on the way there, they end up in Egypt. And while in Egypt, while in Egypt, they come into slavery under Pharaoh. They are in Egypt, the city of man, with Pharaoh, who is the ruler of the city of man. And he's oppressing them in slavery, and God sends Moses to deliver his people from the city of man in the Exodus to take them back to the land, the city of God. The land that they've longed for, that's been promised to them, the paradise that we lost in the garden. And they're on their way there again. And they get there and they set up kings and God gives them commands and they fail to keep their command, the commands God gives them. And they fail to trust the Lord and eventually they're exiled. And they're no longer in the city of God, in the land, in Jerusalem. They're now back into the city of man under the new leader of the city of man, Nebuchadnezzar, in Babylon, which is a type that runs through Scripture as we go all the way through until we get to the book of Revelation. 
And what happens in the book of Revelation is there's two cities again. There's Babylon, the city of man, the kingdom of man, that opposes all that God stands for. And then there's a city of God, the new Jerusalem, that comes down from heavens, the new heavens and new earth. And those two kingdoms are opposed. So the city of God and city of man are opposed. Just as God's kingdom and man's kingdom or Satan's kingdom are opposed. That's a story that goes through Scripture. But there's a centerpiece of that that I skipped right over, which is that when the people were in exile, God came to them and said this, listen, I'm going to make a new covenant with you, a covenant which I will never relent doing good to you, a covenant where you be my people forever, and that covenant comes in a man named Jesus Christ. The new covenant comes in his blood. He comes. He comes as who? He comes as God's people, God's son. And he comes as God's presence, as He became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us. And he comes bringing God's rule and blessing and under it himself saying what? When he comes, repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because when the king comes, so does the kingdom come with him. And then he goes to the cross. He goes to the cross. See, that's why it's interesting that Jesus instituted the new covenant in its blood. Why does the new covenant get instituted in his blood? Well, there are multiple reasons, but one of them is this. What Jesus did when he came is really interesting because what he does is at his death, in shedding his blood, he takes the penalty for our sin. Hear that? What was the penalty for the sin of Israel when they were being led by the kings? The penalty was exile. And what Jesus does is he comes in and he goes into exile on behalf of God's people. He went into Babylon for God's people. As the author of Hebrews tells us, he went outside the gates of the city of God, Jerusalem. He went outside that city and went to the cross and paid for the sins of God's people. Why? So that God's people would be rescued from the city of man, which is where we live now. He then rose from the dead and ascended to the Father to prepare for us the eternal city. I'm going to my Father's house, right? My Father's house, there are many rooms. I go there to prepare a place for you. The city where he rules and reigns forever. In other words, the entire story of Scripture points to Jesus. From the beginning to the end, it's about him. God's people came out of the city of man in Egypt in the Exodus by the blood of the Passover lamb. And Jesus leads a new exodus out of the city of man into the city of God by becoming the Passover lamb on the cross. God's people came out of the city of man in Babylon when they returned from the exile, and Jesus leads a new return to the city of God from the exile in the city of man by becoming the exile on the cross. Jesus saves us into his kingdom, yet until he returns to resurrect us, you need to catch this, Until he returns to resurrect us, we still live in exile in the city of man as we await our resurrection, as we await the day that we are brought into God's eternal city in the new heavens and new earth. See, this this gets picked up in Revelation. That's the story John's talking about when he has a revelation of Jesus returning as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when Jesus returns, what's opposed to him? The city of man, Babylon, the great And he's coming to establish his eternal city. And look how Peter speaks about this. As like Israel lived as exiles in Babylon, waiting for God to take them home, we've been chosen to be exiles here in the city of man, waiting for God to take us home. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, and keep your hand there in Jeremiah. But look at 1 Peter chapter 1, because you'll see this language of the exile picked up. 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 1, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. See that? Elect exiles. These people are chosen to be exiles. They are sent into exile by God. That's us. Chosen exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That speaks of the loving care of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling by his, with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies, excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And he goes on and tells us how to live. See, we've been chosen by God to be exiles here. So how do we live in this city of man? And this is where, as Israel lived in the city of man, it's instructive for us. We can learn from them. What did God tell them to do as they lived in exile? That helps us understand how we ought to live in exile. What did he tell them? Well, let's look at how God commanded them to live. He gives them four commands of how they must live. Four of them. Look at Jeremiah chapter 29 again. Four commands of how they must live in exile. The first one is this. They're supposed to settle down and work. Hear that? Get a job. That's the first command. Work hard. Settle down. Verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. In other words, you're in for a very long ride. Don't rent because you're going to be here a long time. Build a house and live in it. Plant a garden and eat from it. You're not going to go home right away. I know the false prophets are promising you that all this prosperity is coming and that you just ought to go back to Jerusalem right away and God's going to end this exile soon, but he's not going to end this exile soon. You're going to live in the suffering of this exile for a long time. So what are you going to do? You better buckle up, dig in, build a house, plant a garden. See, the building and planting has started for Jerusalem. That's what you're going to do. So buckle up. They need to settle down. They need to stop looking into the sky and do what God has given them to do well. What's God given you to do? What's he given you to do? Are you a mom? Is that what he's given you to do? What's the vocation he's given you? Are you a construction worker? Are you a pastor? What's he given you to do? Whatever vocation God has called you to do, you do that well now. In this time. While you're in exile. You don't put it aside and stand out on the hillside and wait for Jesus to come back. You live in exile well. Yes, this is not our home. And yes, we should long for home. But we should still live here well, trusting that God will eventually take us home. Second, what does he say? He doesn't tell them just to sort of settle down and get a job. He says to have a family. Have a family. Look at that, verse 6. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Now, if you're a Jew and you're hearing this, not only are we exiled here and supposed to build houses and plant gardens and live here like this is home, even though we're waiting for the home in Jerusalem, you to take us home in Jerusalem, we're supposed to live here like this in a sense, but you're now you're having to tell us to have kids and grandkids, get married, have kids and grandkids, you're going to keep us here a long time. Yes, yes, I am going to keep you here a long time is what the Lord is saying. Start having kids and grandkids. Have a family, multiply there, and do not decrease. In other words, we see a reinstitution of the command given to man in the garden, don't we? What was the command? Be fruitful and multiply. And here it gets reinstituted among the people in exile in Babylon. Multiply there. Have children. They were commanded to fulfill what God told Adam and Eve in the garden. Children, multiply. Build good families. Build strong families. Why? Because strong families are the basic building block of what? Society. They're the basic building block of society, which is going to lead into the next command. You need strong families. You have to bear children, have strong families in the city of man, raise godly families because why? Verse 7 but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. See, the third command is seek the welfare of the city. And the best way you're going to seek the welfare of the city is if you build houses, plant your gardens, and do your job well, whatever God's called you to do. Do that well. Live well with your family. Have, get married. Have children. Give your children away in marriage. Have grandchildren. Build strong families because strong families and hardworking people bring about what? 
the welfare of the city. And that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And that, that's an interesting phrase, by the way, the welfare of the city. It's the Hebrew word shalom, which means the peace of the city, the comprehensive well-being of the city. They were commanded to seek the peace, to seek the comprehensive well-being of the city. And somebody would say, why should I seek the comprehensive well-being of the city of man? Isn't that just like rearranging deck chairs in the Titanic? The thing's going down anyway. It's all going to hell in a handbasket. So what's the point of working hard, trying to build good families, trying to work hard at my vacation, vocation here, trying to do what God's called me to do here well? What's the point of all that if it's all going down anyway? The ship is sinking. I feel just like I'm a person out there making the chairs look nice so that the deck looks good as the Titanic goes down. What's the point of all of it? I mean, isn't that what that amounts to? So why command this? Because God wants his people to seek the welfare of all those around them. See, God has placed you as exiles in this city of man, not just them, but you as well. In this city of man we call America, you're to seek her welfare, her shalom, her comprehensive well-being. In the city of man we call Bakersfield, California, the United States, the earth. And I'm going to say something that might shock you all, But this country is not a Christian nation. This is Babylon. It has always been Babylon, and it will always be Babylon. Only the city or the kingdom or nation that is brought by Jesus when he returns is a Christian nation. No matter who wins the presidency on Tuesday, no matter who wins the presidency on Tuesday, this nation is still the city of man. And I hear people saying, but God is going to judge this nation if we don't repent. If the current president stays president and we don't repent and change direction, judgment from God is coming. Let me be really clear. God's judgment is already here. It is here because this is a city of man. This is not the city of his beloved son, which his beloved son will bring at his resurrection. So his judgment and wrath are already here. If you look at Romans 1 and 18 and following, where he talks about his wrath coming incidentally, He says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In other words, God's wrath is currently, presently revealed against all the unrighteousness and godliness of men. And if you go on in verse 24, how does his wrath get carried out right now? How do we see it? Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. Again, verse 26, for this reason God gave them up. He gave them up. He gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty of their, for their error. Again, verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Are you telling me this isn't existing now? That God's wrath and judgment are coming somehow in the future? This exists right now in America. There was a major national party that practically adopted this list of sins as their party platform in August. This exists right now. And guess what this text doesn't say in Romans? It doesn't go on to say, and if the Republicans get their guy elected, all this is going to change. It doesn't say that. It goes on and tells us about Jesus Christ, who is our hope. He's our hope. He's the one who brings the kingdom of God. So then how shall we live since we're living in Babylon and there's nothing we can do about that? Why try to do any good? See, as Israel is supposed to do as exiles in Babylon, so we're supposed to do as aliens and exiles here. As those who are citizens of another kingdom, we're supposed to love our neighbors in this kingdom of man. We're supposed to want their good. 
We're supposed to want God's moral righteousness and justice to be upheld because that is their good. You know, that the law of God is good for people. So we should be good citizens here. We should seek the right to life for all people. We should seek the best financial system possible for all people. We should seek just laws for all people. We should seek the sanctity of traditional marriage and families. We should seek the safest and most peaceful culture for all people. We should seek the true, the good, and the beautiful in the arts and all of life. We should seek for good stewardship of the earth. We should seek to help the poor and the widow and the orphan. See, by God's sovereign hand, we live in a country in which we have the privilege of voting for representatives and laws. That's not a mistake. And we should seek the welfare of our city through these means as well. We should vote. We should be involved. Maybe some of you even should run for office. Above all, above all people, above all people out there in this country, we should be the most eager of all people to seek the welfare of our city. John Newton, are you guys familiar with him? He wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. I don't know if many of you know this, he was also a slave trader. That's what he did. He sailed slave trading ships before he became a believer in Christ. After he became a believer, he wrote this hymn that we know as Amazing Grace. He was also a pastor to several famous people, one named William Cooper. William Cooper, he met William Cooper in a mental institution. William Cooper had massive depression, tried to commit suicide three times. Um, John Newton met him there, led him to Christ, and, and began to minister to him. And William Cooper wrote some great hymns we have today, like There's a Fountain Filled with Blood, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, etc. John Newton was also the pastor of another man some of you may have heard of named William Wilberforce. And Newton talked to William Wilberforce about his ability to influence the country for good in Great Britain. Because William Wilberforce was wealthy, was extremely sharp theologically and politically. And William Wilberforce was well positioned politically to make an influence for good through the end of slavery and slave trade. And so William Wilberforce, through politics, brought an end to the slave trade in Great Britain and eventually the Western world. So let's not minimize politics and pretend that it doesn't matter to people. There's a whole lot of black people who are super thankful that William Wilberforce stood up. Right? Justice is very important to people's lives. And God blessed us to live in a country where the laws are largely determined by the people and not some despot. Thus, we're responsible. Do you hear that? We're responsible. However, we should not make the mistake, now I'm going to give you the opposite, we should not make the mistake of reducing all cultural change, nor the hope of the world, to a great political system. In fact, a great political system is generally downstream of good culture. Further, even a great political system is not the hope of the world. In spite of the fact that we have two presidential candidates who have just appealed to America being both the indispensable, the one indispensable nation in the world and the hope of the world, we're not either of those things. Don't get me wrong. The hope of the world is a politic. It is a city. It is a kingdom. It's just not one that man can ever bring. Because the hope of the world is Jesus Christ and him bringing his city, the city of God, the kingdom of God. Thus part of seeking the welfare of the city is to see more people caught up as citizens in the city of God, which means that we seek the welfare of the city through evangelism. You see, we are sent out as missionaries. And Israel were sent as missionaries into Babylon. And we're sent as missionaries into this world to bring people to Christ. We have to point people to Jesus to preach Christ and him crucified who is the king of peace. And the ultimate peace that that man needs is peace with God. It's the ultimate peace he needs. And the only way he gets peace with God is through Jesus Christ. So the, the preeminent way that we seek the welfare of the city is to make Jesus known so that people are saved. So they have peace with God. But let me make one more suggestion because when you do evangelism, you, you do that by, you know, inviting your friends to church and telling them about Jesus and praying for them and caring for them. But let me make one more suggestion. When you make the gospel known, you need to marry that with the way you care for people. You show them that you're seeking their welfare physically and spiritually. One tangible way you can do that is you can go sign up and be a part of this angel tree ministry. It's one you could do right now. 
You can care for your family members that are in need. You go out and adopt children. So we're to work for the welfare of the city. And fourth, we're to pray for the welfare of the city. Look at, look at this next text. In Jeremiah chapter 29, after he says, Seek the welfare of the city where I sent you in exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. See, we're to pray for the welfare of the city because our peace is in the city's peace. You guys ever heard the phrase, a rising tide lifts all boats? That's essentially what this is. Our welfare is in the city's welfare. We're commanded to pray and work for a just and godly society. For as godliness and justice increases, so too does peace. Well, how do I know this applies to us? Let me first look at Psalm 22. I want you to hear the kinds of things that they prayed for, the liturgy, the order of worship and prayer that existed in Israel when they were ascending, in Psalm 122, when they were ascending to Jerusalem. This liturgy that they're still supposed to pray as they pray for the welfare or the shalom or the peace of the city, they're still supposed to pray in the city of man or Babylon. Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the, th- the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. So here we are singing this, praying this in Israel. Look what they're praying, because they're supposed to pray for it in Babylon as well. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. In other words, what is that talking about? It's actually here more of a reference to financial security. May you take care of the financial needs of these people. Go on. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. In other words, might there be a physical safety for these people? There is not crime and overrun by war and death. For my brothers, verse 8, and companions' sake, I will say peace be within you. In other words, I want the peace overall in this place for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. I want the general welfare of these people, the common good of these people. They're praying that in Jerusalem, and when they get to Babylon, they're commanded to pray the same thing. Pray God to take care of these people financially, and pray he would take care of them physically in their safety, and pray that he would take care of them in their common good or their general welfare. Pray that in Babylon for your enemies. Pray for your enemies. And it carries over in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul gives a very similar command to us. 1 Timothy 2, Paul gives a very similar command to us. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead what? A peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. In other words, we want to pray for these people among us, for the city of man and for their leaders, so that we live a peaceful and, go- and quiet life, so that we live in godliness. And he goes on, so that the gospel is furthered. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So we pray for the welfare of the city. Here's what they must not do. Look at verse 8 of Jeremiah 29, what they must not do. And I'll try to wrap up here in a couple minutes. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. And if you go down to verse 15 and following, which I'm not going to do now, you'll find out that what they were prophesying is, don't worry, God doesn't want us to suffer. This isn't going to last long. We're going to go back to Jerusalem soon. In fact, those of you who are in Jerusalem, stay there. Even if Nebuchadnezzar tries to take you out as exiles, stay there. For those of you who are in Babylon now, it's going to end quick. Don't settle down. Don't build houses. Don't plant gardens. Don't get married. Don't have children. Don't seek the welfare of that city. Don't pray for them. That's the city of man. It's evil. The suffering will end soon. God will take you home soon. And what Jeremiah says is that these are false prophets. They're false teachers encouraging the people not to believe God, telling them that God wanted to bless them with prosperity right now. See, God wants you to live your best life now and to become a better you. You guys familiar book titles, aren't they? False prophets. I did not send them, says the Lord. God doesn't want you to suffer in exile. That's not from him. But these false prophets and those that follow them were condemned. And we have people today telling us, that God does not want us to suffer in exile, but he wants us to have prosperity right now. 
There's a whole movement in Christianity called the Word of Faith movement. And frankly, it's an outside of Christianity movement that calls itself Christianity like some sick parasite. It's got its own TV station. It's got its own set of false prophets. And they are like these false prophets, lying to God's people and not speaking on God's behalf. They tell us to cling to this city of man in the here and now. Cling to it. God may bless us now, and he often does bless us now, but he does not promise us prosperity now. Do you hear that? I'm not saying God never blesses you now. What I'm saying is that's not his promise to you that he'll give you prosperity now. He promises us prosperity eternally. Right now, he promises us exile. Just as Jesus went into exile on the cross outside the city, so we follow him to the cross outside of the city. And we don't cling to all this. We cling to him. So when you vote on Tuesday, and when the elections information starts coming in and you start getting the results and you find out who wins and what direction the Congress goes and what direction the state goes and what directions propositions go, what I don't want you to do is to allow your heart to cling to that news. If that's news that you're excited about and thankful for or that's news that you're disappointed over, your heart should not be clinging to what's happening here. Should you seek the welfare and the good of the here and now? Yes, but your heart should not cling for it because this is not your home. This is not your ultimate city. This is not where your ultimate citizenship lies. No matter who gets elected on Tuesday, Jesus is still on the throne. Hebrews chapter 13, this statement about Jesus going outside the city, I want you to hear it. Verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Where is that? Outside the city of Jerusalem as an exile in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. In other words, let us live as exiles with him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured for we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. See, that's what we're seeking. Let me finish by showing you God's promise. First, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. God's gracious promises to them. And there are three of them, and you're going to get them rapid fire. You ready? Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. In other words, you're going to be in exile for 70 years, which was in fact the case. They were in exile for 70 years. Eventually, Babylon got overthrown by Medo-Persia. And King Cyrus, or Darius the Mede, depending on how you see the history there, sent the people back to Jerusalem. They were in exile, though, for 70 years. And Jeremiah's telling them, you're going to be in exile for 70 years. And Daniel in chapter 9 picks that up, that you're going to be in exile for 70 years from the prophet Jeremiah. Why 70 years? Because the people had failed to keep the Sabbath year. You know what the Sabbath year is? Every seven years was to let the land rest for a year. Every seventh year. They had failed to do that ever since they had a king. They had failed to do it for 490 years or 70 Sabbath years. And so God said, if you're not going to let the land rest, I'm going to let it rest. 70 years you'll be in exile. One year for every Sabbath year you failed to keep the Sabbath year. So they were in exile. It says, after that exile, though, I will visit you and I fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem, to the city of God. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil. In other words, for your shalom and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Therefore, you will call, come upon, you will come up, call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord, and I'll restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. There are three promises that are given here that carry over to us. Here's the first one. I'll bring you back to the city of God. I'll bring you back to the city of God of Jerusalem. That's what he promised them. God is telling Israel they have 70 years stint in Babylon. They may suffer for a little while, but he doesn't plan to leave them in that suffering forever. He will take them home, and he will take us home as well, as Jesus promises to us in John 14. I'm going to prepare a place for you. He's going to bring us home to his father's house. That's why Peter can say in 1 Peter 5 to be sober-minded and be watchful because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered for a little while, 
the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So I'm going to take you home. Second promise, I'm working my plan for you, and it's a good plan. Plan for a hopeful future. Verse 11, God is working for their good in this exile. It's all part of his plans. He has a plan for a hopeful future for them. And you might say, well, can I apply Jeremiah 29, 11 to myself? Yes. Yes, you can. Was it originally given to Israel in exile? Yes, it was. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always looking out for the good of his people and has a hopeful future for his people. He has a plan for you. Now, is your plan the plan he had for them? Not the exact same plan. No, he's not going to take you back to the literal Jerusalem and establish you there. But his plan is for your good. And just because you can't make out the picture on the tapestry of history that God is weaving because you're only seeing a small corner of that tapestry doesn't mean that the picture isn't good and beautiful. Just because you don't know what his plan is in the midst of your suffering and can't see the whole thing doesn't mean that you ought to be anxious as if God is done working out his plan because he's not, and it's for your good. God is working for your good. Third and final promise, I will hear you and be found by you. He tells them, if you seek me with all your heart, I'll hear you. I'll be found by you. God hears and is found by his people. When we pray, he does not close his ears. He wants to hear us and draw near to us and be found by us and dwell with us. Does that apply to you? Yes, it does. These verses don't just apply to Israel in exile. They apply to you. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Let me end with 1 Peter verse 3 as he writes to the exiles, the elect exiles, whom we are. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look to you as your elect exiles here, that you would help us to live well. Help us to live well in this city of man as those who are citizens of the city or the kingdom of God. Help us to live for your glory and to look forward to our home with you and to trust your promises that you hear us, you care for us, you draw near to us. Help us to trust that. Help us to trust that you're seeking our good in all things even when we can't see them, see what you're doing in them. Help us to know that you're going to take us home and to trust you. Father, help our hearts not to cling too much to this world or its promises, but that we would love you, love our neighbors, and long for the day of your son's return in which we will which we will receive the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.